Well, welcome if you're just joining us. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see everybody this morning. Like, on our kind of first official day of fall, you know, I kind of commemorated it. I don't, it's not official, but it's like raining and dreary by like going all gray. See, like it's like Oregon camouflage, you know. Um, I, I'm usually, I, I dyed my hair even to go with it, so. Anyway, if, you know, if you are just joining us, um, you know, we have been studying through the Gospel of John, and, you know, the Gospel of John is written to, to, to reveal to us who Jesus is, and so that when we see who Jesus is, we can believe in him, we can have life in his name, not just life when we die, but like a restored life right now today as we begin to like just walk in new life of following him and as he begins to restore to us all of those things that we've lost because of our rebellion against him. You know, if our text this morning is, in our text this morning, and we're mostly going to be in um, chapter, the beginning part of chapter 12, but it's going to really focus us on a couple of individuals, one of whom like found life in Jesus and one of whom did not. They both had close relationships with Jesus. One responded to Jesus with like unrestrained, like unhindered, lavish, like love and devotion. That's why I've entitled this loving devotion. The other responded to him with like treachery and deceit and was only seeking out his own purposes and not the purposes of God. You know, for... You know, if, for those of us that are Christians here this morning, I think this is an important text for us because it, it speaks to our affections. Like, what are those things that we, like, love? Or who is it, I should, we should say, like, ultimately that we love? You know, I think oftentimes we think, like, the Christian life is all about, like, do, 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 do. And really, it begins with something quite different. It begins with having our, like, affections, like, focused on Jesus in response to what he's done for us. So I think it'll be good for us as Christians to be reminded of that. If you're here and you, you like, don't really like know what you think about Christianity, you're here just kind of reluctantly, you're here um, kind of exploring things, I'm glad you're here. And my hope for you would be that you would just get a glimpse more richly of who Jesus is and that you would find life in him as well. So I'm glad you're here this morning. And and like I said, we're in the Gospel of John, and that's, that's in the New Testament, kind of like if you have a Bible that from the back table there, it's probably like three quarters of the way through the book. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. They're long books there. So if you're flipping through and seeing any of those, you're in the right neighborhood, and John's the fourth of those kind of big books um, there in the New Testament. So our outline this morning as we, as we look at it really has two points. So the first is, is that we're going to see this kind of increasing fascination in, there it is, increasing fasc, fascination. I should have like tried to say that before I put it in my outline because I'm going to have to say it multiple times. <laughs> increasing fascination and tension. And, and, uh, and, and it's kind of like surrounding the, the other text that we're looking at. Where, where it's this picture of intimate devotion on one hand and treachery on the other. You know, so why don't we stand um, as we read God's Word. I'm going to start reading at chapter 11, verse 53, all the way through chapter 12, verse 11. This is God's Word for His church. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the, 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure, pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to, to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we like, are, are repaired in our relationship with you through him. And so, Father, I just ask that you would allow me, amidst my weakness and inability as a communicator, just to um, highlight the, the beauty of what your son has done for us. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, the scene that we saw there at the beginning of chapter 12, like in verses 1 through 8, where Mary's anointing Jesus' feet with this perfume, um, doesn't stand on its own, but it's a part of this bigger story, and it's kind of sandwiched between those two narratives at the end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 11, and then in verses 9 through 11. And I've entitled this, this uh, section, you know, that, that surrounds the story of Mary there, um, with as increasing fascination and tension. Increasing fashion. Are you filming me? Oh, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to do the, like, like the light, you know? So. Sorry if you're new here. I have, like, I, I'm easily distracted. So, like, um, it doesn't take a lot to get me off track. Um, the, uh, where was it? Increasing fascination and tension. Because what happened at the end of verse, the reason why I started reading in verse 53 is that they had planned on that day to kill Jesus. So the, if you remember from last week, if you were here, what we saw last week was that the, the Sanhedrin, who was the, the, the highest authority in the land apart from the Roman Empire themselves, and they were appointed by the, Roman, by the Romans, they were scheming together with their kind of like arch rival, the Pharisees, and they all decided to get together and come up with a single unified plan to kill Jesus because everybody was beginning to follow Jesus. And, and back in chapter 11, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to do. And so they had this fear that, oh, everybody's going to follow Jesus. And so there was this plan to kill him. And so what we find out in verse 54 of chapter 11 is that Jesus goes into hiding. He goes into some town called Ephraim, which we don't even exactly know where that is. He's hiding out with his disciples. We, know, we don't really know how long that lasted, but we know that the distance between the time between chapter 10 and chapter 12 here is only three months. 
So he was hiding out for probably like a month or two um, in this town called Ephraim because the powers at B had issued a warrant for his arrest. And I always have like a picture. I think it was like entangled, you know, where they have the hand-drawn like wanted posters. They're all over Jerusalem. Was it tangled? Okay. I have four daughters. I have seen like every like girl movie, you know, you name it. So um, tangled. I won't sing, but um, all over Jerusalem, there's these wanted posters of Jesus, and the, the word has gone out. If you know where Jesus is, you're supposed to turn him in because we're going to arrest him. We're going to seize him. There's a warrant out for his arrest, and so he's hiding out. And what we find out then is that in verse 56, like the Passover was coming, and so as the crowds of people are going up to the Passover, everybody knows that Jesus is under arrest, has, has got this warrant issued for his arrest, but they also know that Jesus always goes up to these feasts. And so there's this big discussion going on, like, oh, what do you think, verse 56, that is he going to come uh, to the feast of Passover at all, or is he just going to stay in hiding? Like, what's going to happen? I think we're supposed to meant to feel like this, this tension of, like, the powers at be are rising up in their rebellion against Jesus. Jesus is in hiding. This is dangerous business. We discover in chapter 12 that, verse 1, that Jesus came to the, came, that six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was. If you look, if you remember back in chapter 11, that was only two miles from Jerusalem. So six days before the Passover, which this Passover that is referring to is, is the Passover where Jesus was crucified. So all of a sudden here we are, six days before the crucifixion. And Jesus shows up in Bethany, two miles from where, two miles from Jerusalem, where the powers that be like, like rain and well within their grasp. You know what we see in, at the end there in, chapter, in verse, chapter 12, verse 9, it says the great multitude of the Jews learned that he was there. Like, so then the word got out that he was actually in Bethany and they came not for Jesus' sake also, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. So when, as soon as the people found out that Jesus was in Bethany, like this huge crowd, this great multitude, I think is how it read, right? This great multitude went up to Bethany so that they could see Jesus and they could see the guy that used to be dead. And so now we've got this tension of like, okay, he's a wanted man. You've got the crowds following Jesus, the, the Sanhedrin's like worst case scenario. They had said this back in chapter 11, that all the world will follow him was happening. And we're supposed to wonder like, oh, what's going to happen now that, that Jesus is there? He's got this huge crowd of followers. Everybody knows he's there. There's a warrant issue for arrest. We're supposed to be anticipating like the showdown at the Jerusalem Corral, right? Like there's this tension there's the crowds like fascinated with Jesus and we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you do. If you've, if you've read the Bible, you might know what's going to happen, but we're supposed to feel that the weight of that though, the weight of that situation. And you know, kind of before I move on to like where I want to spend most of our time this morning, I just want to speak about those crowds. Like there's these crowds, this huge multitude went up and followed Jesus. It's the same multitude that followed, like came with Jesus into Jerusalem. What we'll see next week is at the triumphal entry where they're all like crying out that, that like Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then like five days later, they're all yelling out, crucify him. Like John doesn't give a good, like he doesn't like, 
The crowds that follow Jesus, he doesn't speak affectionately about. In fact, he, he kind of makes the point throughout the Gospel of John, and you've seen this if you've been with us in our study, that, that people that are only following Jesus because they're like enamored with like what he's done or what he could offer them or the food that he gives them or whatever, like don't really have genuine faith at all. In fact, in, at the very beginning of the book, in John chapter 2, that was the first Passover that we see Jesus celebrating. In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. He's doing all these miracles. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's, there's all these people, like Jesus is popular. People are fascinated with him. They're, they they are, are, these crowds are following him. And yet what John tells us is that not everybody that claims to follow Jesus really does follow Jesus. In fact, most of them didn't. As soon as Jesus would say something hard, they would depart. You know, I think the reality is, is that a lot of people, and some of you here might be in this place, a lot of people come to Jesus because they think Jesus can give them what they feel like, they, what you feel like you need for your life to be like satisfied or happy or fulfilled. But what Jesus, Jesus calls us to something so much bigger than that. Jesus says, like what did he, all the things that he claimed about himself, like I am the bread of life. He who comes to me Oh, I'm the water of life, sorry. He who comes to me will never thirst, something like that. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's the whole filming thing. I'm going to blame it on him. Any of my mess-ups. He's the water of life, and it's not just what we get from Jesus. It's Jesus himself. He's the bread of life. He satisfies our deepest hunger. But it's not what we get from him. It's him himself. He's the light of the world, and he's the life of men. Like life is found in coming to Jesus, being exposed by Jesus, being forgiven by Jesus, and then following Jesus. That's where life is. It's not something we just get from him. It's found in him. You know, there's a big difference to coming to Jesus for your life and following him as your life and looking to him as the resurrection and the life who will like rescue you from that great enemy of ours, death, and just coming to Jesus for what you can get from him because you feel like you have some needs in this world. Like God calls us to like this, and we're going to see a picture of this with Mary. God calls us to this complete like trust and devotion and looking upon Jesus for our life. If you're just simply coming to him for what you think he will give you and you think that he's going to give you what you want in this life, then that's just religion. But you need to come to Jesus because he is the one that gives you life. You need to put your reliance upon him and trust him and be satisfied in him. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He's the light and life of men. He's the resurrection and the life. It's only found in Jesus and following him and staying with him. <clears throat> you know, the Apostle Paul talks about like the kind of faith that saves as opposed to the kind of faith that doesn't save. And he gives an example of the, of the Thessalonian Christians. And this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. I think I've got it on the screen. 
And he's talking to the, he's talking to the church in Thessalonica. It was a Greek city. And, and this is what he says about them. He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what he's saying is to the Thessalonians is like the way that you received the word of God, the truth about who Jesus is, is an example to all the believers in the whole and all the surrounding provinces around you. Like the way you believed is an example for how everybody should believe. He goes on. For the word of God has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. So he's saying like, man, everybody's hearing about your belief in Jesus and hearing about Jesus because of your belief. Verse 9, it says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait from his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's kind of his definition of, his definition of faith that should be emulated, a faith that's an example, is one where you turn from idols all of those things that you look to to give you satisfaction and significance and, and hope and peace and comfort. You turn from your idols and you turn to God himself and relying upon the work of Jesus Christ and clinging to him. You turn from idols to the living God who frees us, who frees us from the wrath to come. It's a complete and radical change of heart and change of affection and change of allegiance. It's not just going to Jesus because you can get something from him. We're going to see an example of that too in our text. In fact, Michael Lawrence, he's a pastor up in Portland. Um, he says this about these verses. Uh, it says, calling people to repentance then means calling for reorientation of worship. So who or what are we worshiping rather than God? What compels our time and energy? These are ways that he's defining what we worship. What compels our time and energy, our spending and our leisure? What makes us angry? What gives us hope and comfort? What are our aspirations for our children? Those are the things. Oh, that's the wrong quote. I mean, the wrong person. That's not Jonathan Lehman. It's Michael Lawrence. I didn't change that. Sorry. That was my fault. It's not the film's fault. So, <laughs> no. Yeah, it is. You can see me stream me live with all one other person. Um, <laughs> it is recorded though, so the uh, I should have thought of that myself. But um, yeah, thank you, thanks, Gene. That's what deacons do, man. They just take care of needs. What are your aspirations for your children? What gives you hope and comfort? What makes you angry? What compels your time and energy? Those are your gods. Those are your idols. And then he goes on and says this, idols make lots of promises even though they can't keep them. Repenting then means exchanging our idols for God. Before it's a change in behavior, it must be a change in worship. Real repentance is a new worship. It looks like a changed life, but that changed behavior results from a change of worship, not the other way around. 
Like it's when our affections are placed on Christ and where our worship is placed on Christ and when our devotion is placed on Christ, then we desire to like walk in obedience. It's not the other way around. Like I got to do this, 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 I got to do this. And then maybe like, maybe God will like, like come through for me. That's idolatry. Like looking at Jesus because he is worthy of all of our like love and affection and then like seeking to live a life pleasing to him. That's a worship. He goes on. Repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin, not the badness of our deeds, but the treachery of our hearts toward God. Repentance means hating what we formerly loved and served, our idols, and turning away from them. Repentance means turning to love God whom we formerly hated and serving him instead. It's a new, deepest loyalty of the heart. That's what genuine faith looks like. It's like, I'm going to turn from all of this stuff that just never delivers, and I'm going to place a new and like devotion of my heart upon you, Lord, and seek to follow you and rely upon Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the faith that Paul's talking about, and that's the faith that the crowds lacked. They just followed Jesus because he put on a good show, because they wanted more of what like, he had to give, but they didn't really want to follow him and reorient their lives around him. But we see an example of, of like true like faith and true worship as we get into point two in verses like one through eight, intimate devotion and treachery. And I'll start reading here in chapter 12, verse one. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus is one of those reclining at the table with him. So what we have here is this scene, like we step away from this kind of like this national scene of like treachery and intrigue, of fascination and like, and like plots of murder. And all of a sudden our focus is on like one little house in the town of Bethany and a dinner party where Jesus is having dinner with some of his closest friends. And we know from the other Gospels that, it, that the house that they were at was the house of Simon the leper, which is kind of interesting. Simon is actually the ex-leper, like, but he, they still call him Simon the leper, which is kind of cool. Um, I suppose if I was healed from leprosy, I would be like, I, you call me Steve the leper. Um, anybody ever, ever seen like Brian Regan's like skit on uh, I Walked on the Moon? Anybody ever seen that? Only like three, four, five people here. Look it up on YouTube. If, unless your faith doesn't let you to do that, then <laughs> Brian Regan, I walked on the moon. Not now. <laughs> I see you guys on your phones already. But it reminds me of this, like, cause I, I, I want, my mind wants to go here, even though John doesn't take us here, but just humor me for a minute. You do got Simon the leper and you got Lazarus who was raised from the dead and they're, they're like talking like, oh yeah, like, I had leprosy, like my fingers were being gnawed off by rats, and like Jesus like healed me. And like Lazarus was like, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> you ain't got nothing, Simon. I was dead. Right? But John doesn't go there, so I won't go there any longer than I already have. So I just couldn't resist that. But what he does focus on is really interesting. Verse 2. They made him supper at Simon's house, and Martha was serving. You know, this, I, I looked at that when I was studying this in verse 2. Like, Martha was serving, and Lazarus was reclining at the table. Lazarus is hanging out with Jesus at the table. 
This isn't even her house, but Martha's serving in the kitchen, like making sure everybody's well cared for at this meal. The fact that Martha was serving does nothing to carry this story forward. It has no significance in the plot. But yet John wanted us to point out that Martha was serving Jesus and his friends by caring for him during this meal. He was... It's this little nod to Martha that honors her, and I, and I think it's really, really important because I said this a couple weeks ago when we were at the beginning of chapter 11, that Martha gets a bad rap, like all the time. But in, back in chapter 11, she's the one in chapter 11 who, who makes the clearest statement about like Jesus that I think anybody's made about, John, about Jesus so far in the Gospel of John, that he's the Messiah, He's the promised one. He's the son of God. Like he's God himself come in the flesh. He's the one that has come into this world. He's the preexistent one. Like Martha gets it. And so what she's doing, she's cooking dinner. The reason why I wanted to stop here and like talk about that for a minute is because I think there's a, like in, in just a moment, the camera's gonna shift to Mary. And Mary is one of those people that has like more extravagant like ways of like worshiping Jesus. But John doesn't want us to forget Martha. And you know what? There are some of you here who are, who are gifted more like Martha, and you're just those faithful, quiet people who serve behind the scenes and care for like Jesus and his people. And there's, there's countless of them. Well, I mean, I'm sure I could count them if I sat down, but there's bunches of them here at Creekside that are cleaning and doing all this behind-the-scenes ministry and making your coffee and doing all these things. And if you're one of those people and, you're, and you feel, like, insignificant because there's people like Mary that we're going to see in just a minute who have these, like, flashier, like, ways of, like, serving Jesus, like, just put that out of your head. Like, John honors Martha here as one who's, like, providing this, this dinner party for Jesus six days before he dies. He's able to hang out with his friends, have a good meal, probably joke about like Simon and Lazarus. <laughs> Got to bring it back. <laughs> right? Like if, so if you're one of those people who like quietly serves the Lord behind the scenes and people don't notice, know this, like the Lord does. And don't think that what you do is insignificant because it is. And one day we'll all see that. Like what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 that that we should show like a greater honor to those who have like less like visible service. So thank you, all of you people that serve in those quiet like ways. Thank you for that. Because, uh, because the kingdom of God would not move forward without you. And Martha is responding in worship to Jesus in this simple way. But then we do move to Mary, who's one of those people whose service is a little bit more flashy. Look what happens in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Like, really? They need some marketing help? Like, hey, baby, I got you a bottle of nard. <laughs> Nothing says romance like that, right? Like, or some of your translations read spikenard, which is, I don't even know if that's better or worse. So... Interestingly enough, nard, spike nard is a plant, and they get this like essence from the plant. It's grown in India. So this, this perfume would have been imported all the way from India. It's a pretty big bottle of it. It's, it's like uh, 12 ounces. It's about the, half the size of a wine bottle, which is a big bottle for perfume. 
She's got this bottle of perfume, and she comes into the room, and Jesus is reclining there. And the way they would eat is they would lay on their side, and their feet would be kind of pointing away from their table. They didn't have chairs. They would be laying on the floor. And Mary comes in, and she pours out, we, we, she pours out this ointment all over Jesus, like from head to his feet. The fragrance is filling the whole room. Then she gets down on her hands and her knees, and she undoes her hair. She doesn't even use a towel. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. You know, if you, we find out later in the story that, that that bottle of perfume cost 300 denarii. A denarii was the cost of the average laborer's wage um, for a single day. So it's 300 days' wages. It's basically because you don't work on the Sabbath. It's basically a year's salary for a laborer. So in like present-day economics, like the minimum wage at, in Oregon is what, like $15 an hour? So that, so that comes to like $30,000 worth of perfume. She takes this thing that's like one of her greatest treasures, $30,000 worth of perfume, and she pours it out onto Jesus. She falls down at his feet. And when she undoes her hair, like... Jewish women never let down their hair, like married ones, never let down their hair in public once they were adult. It was, it was kind of like a, it was this kind of scandalous move. Not in this weird way, but in a way that kind of like shows that Mary doesn't care at all about what people think about her. She just like loves Jesus and she's like, like humbly kneeling at his feet and wiping, like wiping them with her hair this beautiful picture of just like lavish and unrestrained and uninhibited like love and devotion to Jesus. And I would even say, I, could, I think we could even use the word worship of Jesus. She's there at his feet. Worshiping. You know, and even though it's like somewhat more flashy than Martha's doing, actually it's, it's not quite that because Flashy is not the right word because the person who washed other people's feet, like you might know this if you've been in the church for a while, like the people that washed other people's feet, that was the, the lowest like slave job in the household. So by her wiping Jesus' feet and then not even using a towel to do it, using her own hair to do it, like she is taking this place of humility and service and loneliness that's even lower than her sister Martha who's serving at the table because that was a better job than the foot washer person. So it's this picture of like complete humility before Jesus. She takes the place of the lowest servant. She offers up her greatest treasure and she pours it out on Jesus in this picture of love and devotion and worship. It's really remarkable. You know, and, and in, with the backdrop of all the political intrigue going on, with the danger that's brewing as the powers that be are, are, are like rising up against Jesus, Mar Mary's making this statement. There is no doubt in anyone's mind whose side Mary is on. She's all in with Jesus, offering up the most precious thing she could because like he, he had captured her affections, he had captured her heart. 
You know, if you were here like two weeks ago when I talked about the raising of Lazarus, do you remember when I said that the raising of Lazarus had started off the story telling us that the Mary who is involved in the raising of Lazarus is the one whom Jesus anointed the feet with, with the perfume? Do you guys remember that? Anybody that was here? I know it was two weeks ago, so that's about... We, you can watch online. So, um, it's a joke. That story pointed us forward uh, to this story. And this story, when it says um, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead in chapter 12, verse 1, points us back to that story. And we have the story of the Sanhedrin in the middle where they're scheming to kill Jesus. And I had asked people, if you didn't know where to study, to like meditate on those things, read those sections, and try to find out like why those stories are connected. And I think kind of on the surface level, one of the ways that they're connected is that Mary's response here is a response to, this is the first time we see Mary after that incident with Lazarus. And, and last time we saw Mary in chapter 11 is that she was weeping at Jesus' feet because she, they, had, they had sent message to Jesus to come help with Lazarus because Lazarus is sick at the point of death. And Jesus didn't show up. He didn't come. Lazarus died. And when Mary sees Jesus, she falls at his feet in just grief and in sorrow and in despair and in confusion. And she makes this accusatory statement to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That was the last words we heard from Mary. Like Jesus, but in that story, if you were here two weeks ago, you, you might remember that we were reminded of Jesus' love for her, that he had this unconditional love for her, and he was going to walk with her through those dark moments and bring her out the other side. And he did that when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Like in this response of like ultimate like devotion and, and love and humility towards Jesus is a response to the love that he demonstrated to her first. When... when Jesus, in his power, spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And it says at the end of, I think it's in verse 50, no, 44, he, he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Mary is responding to the love that Jesus demonstrated when he showed his power over death itself. And that Jesus was able to call Lazarus out of the grave and set him free. It's this beautiful picture of responding to Jesus' love. We're going to circle back to that. But before we do, let's look at a person that doesn't respond that way. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor, to, to poor people? So here you have Judas... It's not a super popular name these days because um, he's the one that ends up betraying Jesus. And we find out that he already has that in his heart. And we find out that he's a thief, like he's greedy. He's following along with Jesus. He volunteered to be the treasurer so that he could like glean off of the money that was put in the box. And he's looking at this perfume that's worth $30,000. And he's like, hmm, I could have like made some bank off of that. Maybe we should get her to stop pouring. I could at least sell what's left for 20 grand. It's interesting because here you have Judas. And I, I think oftentimes we overlook Judas because he's kind of such an extreme example. We're like, we don't really have anything to learn from Judas. But I think we do. Because Judas is following Jesus simply because of what he can get from him. 
He's able to like get some money because he's following Jesus. He has some fame and some notoriety because he's following Jesus. But now all of a sudden, with this backdrop of the treachery of the Pharisees and the warrant out for Jesus' arrest, it's beginning not to pencil. Like now you've got the highest powers of the land issuing a, a, issuing a warrant for Jesus' arrest, and Judas is like, hmm, could probably make some money easier another way. In fact, I could collect the reward money if I betrayed Jesus, and I could at least get 30 pieces of silver, right? So here's Judas as a guy who's only following Jesus because of what he can get from him. And he's not looking to him for life, as opposed to Mary, who is all in with Jesus, humbly, like lavishly and devotedly. You know, so kind of these two massive examples for us of, and Judas is this warning to us of, and if you're just coming to Jesus because of, of what you can get from him, not because of who he is and what he's accomplished for you, at the end of the day, that's not going to pencil for you. You know, it, it, Jesus talks over and over again about the cost of what it means to follow him, and the crowds proved it over and over again. As soon as it became like difficult, they were just out. The kind of worship that Jesus calls us to is the kind of worship that Mary has, where we take the, that is what, what is most valuable to us, and we fall at the feet of Jesus in humble adoration and worship, and we pour it out on him. Jesus responds to Judas, and he says this, verse 7, Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For, you, for the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. Down in verse 8, there's this statement that Jesus makes that feels, it seems kind of weird. He's like, oh, there's poor, you always have poor people around. But you won't have me. And I've heard, the reason why I said it like that is I've heard people kind of use this verse to justify like a callous attitude towards the poor. But that's not what's going on here. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually alluding to the Old Testament and the Old Testament law about how to care for your poor brethren. In fact, he says it's, a, it's a, an allusion back to Deuteronomy 15, 11. I think I have it on the screen. It says, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the needy, to your needy and to the poor in your land. What he's telling Judas is like, hey, Judas, I'm glad that you're so concerned about the poor. You always have the opportunity to give to the poor, poor Judas, if you, if you care about the poor. But you're not always going to have me. In fact, I'm going to die because she's preparing me for my burial. But you wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Judas? And if I was Judas, I'd be like, hmm, I don't know, squirming, right? Not only do I not care about the poor, I just care about myself. So my statement's complete hypocrisy, but I'm actively scheming to be the one to like turn Jesus over to the Pharisees and the chief priests where he's likely going to be killed. That brings us to the second thing there in verse 7. Let her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What Jesus is saying is there's a lot more going on here, Judas, than meets the eye. 
This isn't just an act of love and devotion. This is an act where she is anointing me as this foreshadowing of embalming me for when I get put in the grave. I don't think Mary understands what she's doing, but she's pointing forward to the crucifixion and the death of Christ, which is going to happen just six short days from now. You know, and I think the I think this is where like, it really ties back into John chapter 11. In fact, to the whole book of John. Because here we are at the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, the Passover was this feast that the nation of Israel celebrated when they were enslaved in Egypt. And, and God like, told them to kill the Passover lamb. And by killing the Passover lamb, the angel who was going to bring judgment upon the land would pass over their house and they would be delivered and rescued from slavery. And, and their rescue was secured by the death of a lamb. That's the Passover. And John opened the book in John chapter 1, and he, he looked at Jesus, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the somebody know? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What Mary's doing is, is pointing us to something so much deeper than she even understood. That the Passover is upon us the Lamb of God who is going to offer himself for the sins of the world is going to be departing this world and be buried in the grave. In fact, we see back in chapter, in chapter, flip back in chapter 11, verse, I don't know, let's just go to verse, it's in my notes, 47 maybe. No, verse 25. The, one, the very one who told Martha, and I'm sure Mary heard about it afterwards, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection and the life, think about this for a second, is going to go to the grave. Both of these stories, the raising of Lazarus and the crucifixion of Jesus that, that Mary's pointing us to, both involve graves. In fact, Lazarus comes out of the grave and Mary responds with this kind of worship as she sees God's power over like sin and death. But I just want to submit to you this morning that Mary, in responding to the fact that Jesus would die for the people, you can see that in John chapter 11, verse 50. Look what it says in John chapter 11, verse 50 through 52. This is Caiaphas, the high priest, and he's speaking. He says, Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So let me just try to explain this. Like, Mary and anointing Jesus is actually like, like foreshadowing the embalming of Jesus as he goes into the grave. One that was going to allow his people to be delivered from slavery as the Lamb of God. One where he was going to die for his people. Now, like dying for his people just doesn't just mean on behalf of, it means in the place of. The death that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God and because of our false worship and looking to everything else besides God himself to satisfy us was carried out in Jesus when he died in my place. 
It's what theologians call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Like the, the death that I deserve to die, the death that you deserve to die. Jesus died when he died on your behalf and in your place. And it's what, it's what ultimately shows us the love of God. Like, look over at John chapter 13, verse 1. This is five days later. John chapter 13, verse 1. I think, I guess I have it on the screen. Now, before the feast of the Passover, now listen to this. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost is how you could look at that. Like he loved them to the fullest extent anyone could ever love anyone. He had loved everybody, but now he was going to love them to the uttermost in the way that he departed out of this world and returned to the Father. What that means for us is, the, is that the love that Mary was responding to when she responded to him with this unbelievable like love and devotion and affection that's unhindered, she didn't care what anybody thought. Was an Im- like not imperfect, but it was an incomplete love that she had experienced, because the love that Mary experienced, and the Mary that the love that Mary would experience, and the love that God had for her, isn't best seen in Lazarus coming out of the grave. It's seen by Jesus going into it, and we're those who live on the other side of that, like. Mary responded with this unbelievable devotion to a love that, of Jesus' power. And she hadn't even seen anything yet. Half the book almost is going to be on that kind of love. It wasn't seen because he had the power to bring Lazarus out. It was seen in the fact that he had the love and humility to go in to the grave for us. So I guess there's the question as it speaks to our affections and our worship. Like, have we really let the truth of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus would do for us when he would go into the grave, have we really let that like settle on our hearts and transform our affections and realign our worship in in the radical way that Mary demonstrated or not? I think if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us could make a list of all of the things that we continue to cling to, all of the things that we continue to look to, all the things that we continue to hope in um, that isn't Jesus. And what Mary knew here and what she would know like infinitely times more when she would see him like go into the grave and come out for her was a love that like would blow her mind. So I think if we're here and we're just kind of doing the religious thing and we find ourselves like pursuing all sorts of other stuff besides like following Jesus who is the light of the world and the life of men, I think we really haven't let the truth of the gospel settle into the depths of our heart the way we need to. I'm not saying you might not be a believer, right? You see, all the scriptures are filled with people that struggle with their faith in Christ and are different places. Two chapters ago, they were accusing Jesus. Or just last chapter, I mean. 
But I think what it shows to us, if our affections aren't there, that there's areas where Jesus needs to press in and we need to let like the Spirit of God impress like this work of God that he's done for us on our behalf into our hearts so that our affections change and our lives change out of it. And if you're one of those people who just kind of does the Judas thing, like I'm going to keep following Jesus as long as it's not too costly because of what I can get from him and like repent of that because it doesn't end well for Judas. I won't spoil the story. It doesn't end well. So worship team, why don't you come back up? Yeah, I'd encourage you as in these last few moments that we're together here to just reflect on if the Spirit's bringing conviction on your heart and anything that, that you're clinging to or turning to or looking to other than like Christ who is the life of men, like I'd encourage you just to confess that to him. Ask him to like teach you like the riches of his grace. You know, we read in Ephesians 2 during worship. I'll I'll turn there. It says bonus material. Um, Listen to this this prayer that Paul prays for the church. He says, For this reason I bow on my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, church, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Like, confess your sin to him, confess your idolatry to him, turn from that, turn to Jesus and ask him to, like, teach you, like, how deeply he loves you and how he proved that love in the cross so that your affections can begin to change, your worship can begin to change, and you can follow him.